Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we're talking more about the environment, and we're going to do it from firsthand perspectives from two ranchers and a farmer and what they're going through um, and their thought process about how they have to, one, make a living, uh, but two, be conscious about what they're doing, both in creating nutrient-dense, healthy foods and doing it in a way that helps rather than hurts the environment. Because it's clear how you grow your crops or how you raise your cattle can do significant damage to the environment. Or it can be a significant benefactor of the environment and it can help with water retention. It can help with creating biodiversity. It can help with sequestering carbon. And it's amazing that kind of getting to the same endpoint can be in two polar opposite means of doing it. One that is damaging the earth with fertilizer, with releasing carbon into the atmosphere, um, and with destroying the soil so that it, it probably is going to cease being productive at some point in the near future. I mean, that's as damaging as you can get or doing exactly the opposite that's going to, to keep it sustainable and regenerative for generations to come and still producing um, nutrient-dense healthy foods for people. So I, I, I love just the, the difference here and how these three individuals um, are, are so committed to what they're doing. Um, so I really hope you enjoy uh, this episode. Now let's hear from Daniel Sinton. Now Daniel's a fifth generation rancher. His great, great, great grandfather started Avanales Ranch, uh, where he is now the director of operations um, and it's a family run business. And But he's not your average rancher because he grew up on the ranch. But then he went and got educated with a bachelor's from Stanford University and he took classes at the School of Business. And then he went and worked in philanthropy for years. But now he's been back on the ranch for just about 10 years, running the operations and living there with his family. So he knows firsthand, obviously, what it takes to run a ranch. And he's got the history of how sort of this conflict around ranching has changed over time. And he's got some good suggestions and thoughts about how ranching can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And he really sees himself as an environmentalist, which we're going to hear um, more about. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited for you to hear more uh, from Daniel Sinton from Avenales Ranch. And if you like Instagram, if you like uh, pictures of nature and pictures of our ranches, you've got to check him out on Instagram as well. All right, so Daniel, I want to start this part of the of the interview a little um, maybe unorthodox. I want to read from Instagram, but it's your Instagram post, and it was really powerful, and I want to get your comments on it and read it. So there's been a short-held belief that ranchers don't care about the land that they run their cattle on. If you know a rancher, you know this to be as far from the truth as possible. However, I think it is important and difficult to explain how important our land is, not just to our livelihood, but to our souls. There isn't a single person on the planet who covets a raindrop more than a rancher, and no one is more in tune with their soil. This past year has been a brutally dry year. After that first rain last week, we all waited with our breaths held for the first blade of green grass to arrive. Now we await the next raindrop to sustain those tender short green blades and the soil that is so dependent on it. That grass that grows on our ranches is not just for our cattle. Every ranch sustains a variety of wildlife wildlife that can't thrive in the cities or on federal land. On our particular ranch, we have deer, bears, turkeys, mountain lions, quail, dove, bobcats, and elk, to name just a few of the larger species. To count the plants that our ranches provide a place to grow on would take an entire book. 
As we take care of our herds, ranchers are keeping an eye on these plants and animals to monitor not just their health, but the health of the ecosystem that we have been blessed to manage. We are ranchers, the original environmentalists. Now, I got to say, since I know you, I wasn't totally surprised to read that. But I think most people, when they think a rancher wrote that, they're going to be pretty surprised. So give me sort of your thoughts, the background of behind that and what you think the response is. And, and let's let's kick off the conversation that way. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I, I Since that post, you know, I, a lot of my thoughts have been on um, how can I be a better advocate for, for ranchers and, and getting out the word about why uh, we aren't the villains and cattle aren't the villains in this climate crisis. Um, and, you know, Instagram's great because it's uh, it allows a soapbox for, for everyone and that, that has its drawbacks, obviously. But, um, you know, I it was probably the only post I've ever posted where I've said anything of that nature. And um, I got a really good response from it. And it was, it was encouraging because um, it felt like maybe we do have a voice in this whole thing. And, um, you know, for years, cattle have been vilified. And, uh, and that's just not the case that, you know, I think that we can get into the science of everything. But, um, you know, between carbon dioxide and methane, um, but the idea that cattle are a problem has always centered around the topic of methane and methane, which uh, is um, is a greenhouse gas, is something that we need to help help mitigate. But carbon is a is something that lasts in the in the atmosphere for a thousand years. Um, methane is twelve years. It's it carbon is eighty three times more powerful. So the idea that um, reducing your meat consumption or eliminating cattle from from the land is is so misdirected because it's it's the same thing as saying well cars are bad well they they are and we need some better solutions and the same people who have climate crisis on their mind are are saying yeah we need to reduce and uh, and eliminate cars but their solution wasn't to actually do those two things. They were; it was to electrify them, and the idea that you know cattle we need to either reduce or eliminate them. It's just on a completely different scale. You know, I I come from a, a long history of cattle ranching. Um, my great great grandfather started this ranch that I live on here in 1875. I'm the fifth generation. You know, going back to the the part about the soul, you know the the weather. We thrive on weather as ranchers, and um, those raindrops are everything. Yesterday it rained ten hundredths, uh, and every hundredth counted. You know, um, <laughs> because we're not just we're just not just cattle ranchers is a often used phrase, but we're we're grass farmers and. Um, Grass farmers and ranchers are are some of the best climate people on the planet because we have this massive amount of land to to be able to sequester carbon and and it's a real opportunity and I think that by vilifying cattle in this discussion you're really alienating a lot of people who can actually help um, 
you know, cattle are, are little carbon tractors out there. They, they go out and they eat the grass. It produces more soil. It captures more carbon every single year. I, I figured out prior to the call that uh, on our 18,000 acres, we uh, sequester 5,400 tons of carbon every single year. And that's just on our ranch. Um, the Savory Institute says that uh, we have an opportunity to sequester another 200 million tons of carbon if we can improve our soils on rangelands. So, again, I, I think that vilifying cattle is really doing a disservice both to ranchers and, and our capabilities of, of what, we, what we can do on our property, but, but also just completely misguided. Yeah, I think that I think that's really well said. And you know, there there was recently that the um, the COP twenty six conference about climate change, and I saw this one tweet where they showed like fifteen Mercedes SUVs lined up, you know, to transport the people to and from the conferences. And of course, everybody flew there on their private sure. jets. But but they're talking right. about cattle, right? So that's and that bring goes back to the discussion you just had about the carbon dioxide versus the methane. Um, but it does seem like it's taken a whole new life recently of, uh, you know, an increased interest in cattle. And part of that is probably um, because of the plant-based meat options that now exist. So people now have strong financial um, reasons to push this environmental agenda even more. But I'm curious, like, what do you think? Because like you said, you're a fifth-generation rancher. Your great-great-grandfather's been doing this, and it, it's you've seen this since you were a little kid growing up on that ranch. What have you seen in terms of the the atmosphere or, um, I guess, the conflict against your way of life, what you dedicate your life to every day of taking care of, of your cows and taking care of your grass? What have you seen as, as the transition or, or has it sort of always been an issue? I don't, I'm, I'm certain my great-great-grandfather never had to deal <laughs> with uh, this particular issue. Um, but, I mean... It's hard because, like I said, we, we need to be a part of the conversation, and, and, and in that piece, we, we need to not be vilified. And uh, I think it's important that it's, it's an issue that's arisen mostly in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, but in that same time frame, many of the organizations that originally started the vilification of, of cattle um, and ranchers is – They've come around to realizing that cattle are a huge tool that can be used to help uh, mitigate the, all of this. So, um, you know, organizations that are that are uh, have been in conservation uh, for hundreds of years, they are now uh, introducing cattle to properties that they own, and and that's been happening for the last ten years. So, I think that they're. Obviously, the the fake meat thing is is introduced a whole nother level of of pressure on this thing. But I'm not totally concerned about fake meat. I feel like people understand that it, that's not necessary. I'm sure it's helpful in some way. Proteins are great. We need to produce more protein, which is a fantastic segue into the fact that you know we're we're sequestering carbon on land that can't be done, nothing else can be done with it. You can't, I mean, you could put homes out here, but it's a long way from anywhere. Um, you can't in, put intensive agriculture on it. Really, I'm, I, I keep glancing outside my window because I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And uh, 
nothing can go where those cattle can go. And they're doing a service by, like we've talked about, sequestering carbon, but they're also building the soil, um, which will uh, essentially sequester more carbon, and they're producing protein. Um, Really, there can't be any better use for the land. And that's one of the big pieces to me that in this whole thing, people are missing. Let's just say that we remove cattle altogether from the planet. Um, You end up with land like ours. Um, There's millions of acres in the United States that are run, cattle are run on that can't, nothing else can be done to it. The land isn't just going to go back to nature. We've removed all ruminants from the conversation with, there are no more ruminants roaming around in herds. That's not a possibility anymore. So the land will eventually degrade into something that's just a weedy patch that, that eventually removes all of the sequestering possibilities in it. And it, it, th- there's no oxygen that can get into the new, to the grasses to be able to sequester the carbon every year. And so you're actually tipping the scale in the opposite direction and you've removed a huge protein source. So the idea that you're just going to eat less meat or your or beef uh, or you're going to remove the cattle is super short-sighted. I mean, it, you're not going to just remove all the cars from the planet. That's not going to happen. I think it's nice that we're we're transitioning into electrifying the the grid and everything like that, but those those things are going to create other problems. Just as if you, just in the same way that if you remove cattle, you're going to create a, a massive amount of other problems. That's not even saying what happens if you do take rangeland and you drop a bunch of houses on it. You're hmm. You're not only taking away the sequestration, but you're increasing your carbon footprint on that land. So, you know, cattle just need to be a better part of the conversation. And and, and the people who are vilifying cattle need to have us at the table to be able to understand this. Yeah, yeah I like how you really phrase it as, as being part of the solution and, and getting rid of them just makes the pro- problem so much worse. Now. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be out there on the ranch with you and it's amazing and, and riding up and down the hills on the horses and, and watching the, the cattle and how much care you take of the cattle. And I can't help but think like the people making these decisions and vilifying cattle, as you say, they've probably never set foot on a ranch. And so I guess, do you think if they saw what you did, if they saw the ranch, if they saw the grass, if they saw the cattle, do you think that would change the way they see things? And then I guess conversely, they probably have also never seen a monocrop facility growing wheat, soy, or corn with the tractors and the pollution from the tractors. If they saw that, do you think they would change? I guess, so I guess the question is how much of a problem is it that it's people sitting in cities in high rise buildings, making these decisions who don't have the firsthand experience like you? Boy, I I mean, there's a lot to, to unpack there because there's so much involved in that. Right. I, I think to start, I was thinking about the rain thing in my Instagram comment and, you know, rain in the cities is just a nuisance, right? Whereas, whereas, you know, if somebody's in Los Angeles and they go outside and they go, it's raining, it's a problem, right? Whereas, I mean, we're praying for rain. I we got rain yesterday. I already can't wait for the next drop. And, and so I think there's a huge disconnect, not just from people 
you know, living in cities or elsewhere. But um, even especially with people who are doing the legislative uh, things that we need to have, we need to have them doing what you did. You need to come out to the ranch. You need to be able to see it. And, and that goes back to my original comment a few minutes ago about um, environmental groups that originally took a position that cattle were bad for the land. Um, those same people, it took them purchasing a land. There's a very specific instance of this happening with the Nature Conservancy where they purchased a piece of property and they purchased it solely for the tiger salamander. So they had the habitat all set up for the tiger salamander. Well, the first thing they did is they removed the cattle from the property. Well, the weeds came in that snuffed out all of their habitat um, and, and the salamanders left. Well, fortunately, the person who was running that ranch for the Nature Conservancy, he was a longtime member of the Nature Conservancy, he met up with the with the rancher next door who was running cattle, and he said, you know, this is a couple of years down the road, and they essentially had none of the salamanders left. He said, I, I, we've lost all of our salamanders. He said, well, they're all over on our place because there's no habitat for them left. And it, no joke, that's what happened. And And it took him that one single person realizing that this is what it takes. And so they brought the cattle back out and immediately the salamanders returned. It takes that kind of boots on the ground uh, situation for people to really understand what we're talking about. And I can talk and tell I'm blue in the face with somebody from the legislature, but you know, they've got, they've got a lot of things going on in their minds and other fish to fry and uh, you know they don't have time to come out here and do something like that so i'm not sure how to how to make that happen and how to make it clear that we're a part of the solution um but i it certainly it certainly would take it would help a lot if somebody came out and and looked at what we're doing and and kicked the dirt with us now, now let's talk about being part of the solution and what it takes to be part of a solution because there are you know so many ranches in the country where they maybe have been doing the same thing for generations and generations and not necessarily changing or innovating how they work. And, and we've heard from one rancher already who's really trying to put into practice sustainable agricultural type practices to really revitalize the land and be in carbon sink. So I guess the question for you is, um, do you think you have to go to that point to, to have sustainable ag practices to do, you know, short-term rotational grazing, moving the, moving the cows in groups every few days. Um, cause that presents a lot of challenges, uh, especially in a ranch like yours, um, where it's spread out so far and where, you know, things have been done a certain way for so long. So I guess one is what are the challenges for you to be able to achieve that? And two, what do you think you have to achieve in order to become part of the solution? That's a great question, and and it's a it's probably the best point in all of this is that uh, we may not have changed our practices dramatically over the last 140 years. Um, we've been a good carbon sequestration factory uh, for those 140 years, and can we do better? Of course. And I think rotational grazing and, you know, obviously the big catch word right now is regenerative agriculture. Those are things we're doing already. Um, 
there are little tweaks that we can do each individually as ranchers, but the majority of ranchers ranching cattle uh, on open open ground are already doing a lot of that. So I think that there is a potential to increase that via rotational grazing. So that's a, a piece of it. But I'm going to try to use the analogy again of, of cars. Um, you can you know, they can continue to make better cars with better gas mileage or electrification um, in that part of the process. But there is a single piece of that engine and that that automobile that is the problem. And it's in the output, right? So our our current problem in the cattle industry is is less on our end of of raising the cattle. And it's more in that finishing time. So, you know, uh, I, I don't want to vilify um, that that finishing piece of it because that's part of the system. And that's uh, but the system needs to change a little bit. And and there, I think, lies the biggest potential for changing our part in this. And and so, you know, um, there's been this huge resurgence of, of local direct grass-fed beef and even corn-fed beef, whatever you want to do it. But but direct-to-consumer stuff like we've started in the last year and, and a lot of other people throughout the pandemic have started um, is a fantastic way to go and – when I deliver a piece of beef to somebody from a direct consumer model here on the ranch, there is almost no carbon involved in that. And so I think shifting our systems a little bit to, to that, that closer to home direct model it will be helpful, but we have to feed a lot of people. I mean, that's, there's a reason why we've created this huge engine after World War II to feed a lot of people. And it's it's a great engine for feeding people. Now, I think that there are probably a lot of ways that that part of it, so the feedlots, um, you know, doing bladder systems for uh, capturing methane um, from the manure, uh, those types of things, I think could could be a huge help in all of this. Yeah, but I think that's a great point that we're just we're not just talking about grass-fed or feedlot and that one's good and one's right. bad. But we're also talking about the whole system and how you get the meat to the consumer. And that plays a big part too. And I actually, I've got to be honest, I haven't heard much discussion about that in sort of like the popular media. It's more sort of the black and white and less about the process behind it. So, I mean, do you think people just kind of don't want to hear it? It's like a nuance people don't want to hear. It's so much easier to make it black and white or what's it going to take to bring that up to the discussion so when we're talking about the environmental impact people will can be able to see that it's there are more details that that don't have as much to do with what they think is is the number one cause well so i i i think the the issue um is that a lot of the news and the information that's being put out right now is being put out by people outside of our industry, right? It's people who have no idea about yeah. what, what we do, and, and they don't know the difference between me and a feedlot guy. We both have cattle. That's what it is to them, right? And same thing with the legislative stuff. They, they see it in that light where we're all the same group, right? And ironically, you know, Nobody in the cattle industry likes to say this because this is biting the hand that feeds you, and I'm even scared to say it, but really, 
within the industry, cattlemen, producers is what we call ourselves, the people who are producing the cows, are so disconnected from the other part of, of things, which is the feedlot and the packers. And packers are a, a monopoly. Cattlemen don't like to say that because they're afraid that they'll never be able to sell their cattle. But they really are a monopoly. And, and in 1972, my grandfather realized they were a monopoly and he had no pricing power in the situation. He knew that 50 years ago. And so he diversified into wine grapes to be able to help us work our way through these problems. But getting to the heart of the matter is that we aren't, we as producers aren't putting the information out to the sources that need it. And so I think that that's why this conversation is, is so great. I, I, I really hope people will be able to um, listen to what we're talking about and, and, and spread that news that we're, we're talking about. But cattlemen don't want to go and do these things because they're afraid that the packers are going to turn against them and, or, you know, they're just, they're just too big and powerful. They hold all the lobbying, uh, uh, power in this whole thing. So, you know, when somebody goes at the legislature says, well, we should probably do something about legislating some sort of methane capture at, uh, feedlots and, and, uh, packers, they don't want to say that because they're getting their pockets lined by those guys and we're not. So I, I think as an industry, the people who have the biggest power aren't going to voice something like that because eventually the buck stops with them and they're going to have to pay for these methane bladders or, or uh, whatever the solution is. Um, I think as an industry, we really need to be able to come forward and start to, to uh, direct the narrative. Yeah, so that's that's a problem where where the people who are most involved in the in the process and most want to fix the process don't have the power. Right. So that's a real problem. So the question then becomes, what's the solution? And and the one thing I can think of is like we as individuals consuming meat have to be the solution with how we choose, you know, where meat comes from. Buying it from the you know local farmers market, looking for a ranch like yours that does direct to consumers. Do you think that's enough? That if enough people started being more conscious about how they shop for their meat and where they got their meat from, that it would, it would be enough to have a groundswell to start to turn the tide a little bit towards more towards the ranchers and more away from the big monopolies. I sure hope so. I mean, you can see that I mean, COVID was a fantastic thing for that. Um, you know, uh, the amount of people out there looking when, when they went to the store and there wasn't anything there, it, it, it accelerated that movement dramatically. And so I hope that people are starting to get an understanding of, of what that means, um, you know, to be able to do that. The problem that is, that's currently happened is we moved from a, from a, a system a long time ago of individual local slaughterhouses and feedlots and things like that, that could service the local areas to these huge centralized packing plants and the infrastructure is gone. Um, there is a nice movement right now of trying to get those to come back online. Uh, we have a local place here that can do a, a fair amount of animals, but you know, nothing at scale. Um, and so, 
you know, it's going to take a lot of a lot of money being poured into the system um, of of producing these local harvesting units that can can service that and and bring it back. It's the the other piece of this is that it's more expensive to do that, right? So, um, you know, these giant systems are there for for supplying massive amounts of food, and uh, you know, you can't blame it. I, there are a lot of people who need proteins, and 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 beef is a fantastic way to get that protein um, and nutrients. And doing it at scale, this this is pretty much the way to do it. And so, to me, I, I think you, I think when people can afford it, I think people should try to 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 get something locally and and direct. Um, but when they can't, I think we need to try to fix some of those systems. You know, we need to put some money back into, um, you know, capturing some of the some of the methane that that exists in those in those systems. But, um, I mean, lo- long term, I don't I don't know exactly how to feed billions of people, uh, you know, without having a giant system like that. And really, if we're talking about climate stuff. <laughs> There's a solution that nobody really wants to talk about that is the crux of the entire problem and the solution at the same time, and it's just we have too many people. You know, we're really good at making people, and that number is growing from 7 billion now or 7.5, something like that, to 10 billion in a short amount of time. That's just a, that's a lot of people to have in, in the world, and we got to feed more people, so it only exacerbates the, exacerbates the issue. And so... Uh, but nobody wants to, nobody wants to deal with it from that, from that perspective. So it's a good point. And, and the, the other good point though, is that it's almost like the, the government, if they wanted to solve the problem, could invest in the meat industry, could give, you know, subsidies to the meat industry. So that local, um, local production and delivery could be less expensive and then that would cut down on the greenhouse gases. So rather than trying to ban it or, or limit it, they could invest in it so that it could be done the right ways. Um, but if uh, you know, unfortunately, if we're waiting for the government to do that, I think it's going to be yeah. very to do that. Yeah, very, very I, I mean time. that that's a fantastic point, though. Um, you know, there's if there's a lot of money going into you know dealing with the climate problem at the moment and. Uh, this should be if if cattle are going to be vilified, this should be a part of the solution and and governmental support in in getting these systems to be uh, more climate friendly is a fantastic solution. So it's not about it's, as we talked about before, it's not about yeah. removing cattle from the whole system and it's not about reducing your meat consumption. That's not that's not the problem. Um, all of these animals that end up in that final piece of the system at the packer start on places like ours. So, you know, when people are talking about the methane, uh, methane being a part of the problem, they're not taking into account the amount of carbon that we're, we're sequestering on the front end of this. So, you know, I, I think that we need to change the the narrative, and and I think that it starts with things like like what you and I are doing right now. Yeah, I think this has been a great discussion, and, and so much about you know, kind of like you said, boots on the ground, what it's like, boots on the ground, and what you can accomplish, and how we have to change the thinking. 
But so I want to transition for a second though and get a little personal and talk about, you know, what it means to you to be a rancher. Because I mean, look, you grew up on a ranch, but you're Stanford educated. You you've got a business degree. It's not like ranching was the only thing you could do. You've worked in philanthropy for years and you had a lot of options, but you came back to the ranch to to become a rancher. So why why? What was the pull and what does it mean to Oof, you to be um, a rancher? Well, obviously, the history of the family has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, uh, being gifted something as amazing as as this kind of a property is, uh, you know, not too many people get that opportunity. And and it's nice to have been educated uh, in a place where uh, most of these folks don't have any um, anyone that they run across in this kind of a field. And so that's been great. You know, I've I've managed to educate a lot of my friends who who went to Stanford with me uh and and they're all on board with this whole idea and so those are those are great people within the world to to be able to help um further this cause but you know from a personal standpoint um I I I you know I love being outdoors uh, growing up on the ranch you know you're outdoors all the time you're getting your hands dirty. It's just a great way to live. And I wanted to raise my family in that same light. And so, um, you know, uh, my kids are out there with me getting their hands dirty as well. And, um, you know, as you know, from being out here, uh, there's, there are very few jobs as great as ours where we get to get on a horse, we ride, we check on cattle, we look at the soil, we look at the grass. Um, you're out in nature all day. Uh, at the end of the day, you're you're tired and you feel good. Um, and ultimately, it all goes back to um, you know providing something better for future generations. You know, our rangelands are disappearing quickly, and um, that that the rangelands provide an amazing benefit not just monetarily for the state, but, um, but in open space, clean air, clean water, carbon sequestration, um, and, and wildlife habitat. You know, I, I've spoken in my Instagram post about the amount of wildlife that, that we, that we host here on the ranch and, and without rangeland like ours, that stuff doesn't exist most of the forest land and national uh, uh, owned land is brushy, thick, dense forest stuff that 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 animals aren't going to be inhabiting. So, open rangeland like ours provides that habitat, and we're. I mean, going back to the personal part of it, we love the animals that that are on our ranch. You know, it's a Every day I get to see something new, you know, or not new, but I, when I see turkeys or deer or elk or um, mountain lions or bears, whatever they are roaming around on the property, um, you know, I think we, I feel like we're doing our part to, to save them and create a, a, a great habitat for them. And, and we do projects every year to try to improve that. Uh, habitat. You know, we have water projects so that we're uh, dispersing water throughout the the ranch that makes it easier for those animals to take advantage of it. We have little ramps that come up and into the water trough and and out of the water trough so that quail and other animals can come up those 
ramps and drink and then get back out if they fall in or something like that. And so we have, you know, we're constantly trying to make the habitat better, not just for our cattle and for the land, but, but for the wildlife. Yeah, and I remember that Instagram post you had with the bear sitting in the water trough. I thought that was yeah. a kick. I got a kick out of that one. But so, I, but I want to. Um, and I just want to finish with with quoting that we are ranchers, the original environmentalists. And I think what you just said there really sums it up. That it's it's not even about just the cattle or just the grass, but also the wildlife. And that's what environmentalists should be about, about the whole environment. So I, I appreciate that sentiment and, and all you're doing to, to try and spread yeah, this no, message. Thanks. And, and I really so, appreciate you. that you brought that up because it is something that I wanted to end on was that, uh, you know, we are the original environmentalists The there's, there's nobody who cares more about the land than, than us. And we're engrossed in it every single day. And, I I hope we get to be a better part, bigger part of the conversation going forward. But uh, but I also want everybody who's listening to when they see somebody with a cowboy hat on, and never mind politics, I want them to be understood that when, when they see that cowboy hat, whether it be on them walking around or in the truck as they're driving by, that those people are out there working to make land and open space a better place for everyone to enjoy. Now let's hear from Kevin Muno. Now Kevin has a degree in business administration and management from University of San Diego. And one of the things that I like about his story is that he doesn't come from a ranching family or a ranching background. And he sort of worked his way through kind of the real world, right? And uh, and it came sort of like almost a mission within himself to to bring together nutrition with the bigger picture and the bigger connection. And that's what got him into ranching and specifically regenerative agricultural ranching. And so he's at Perennial Pastures Ranch, and they're pretty uh, popular on Instagram at perennial.pastures. And he's the co-founder there. And as you're going to hear, he has a lot of thoughts about how to make this work because he's going through it. Uh, himself right now, trying to figure things out. And he's sticking to the principles of regenerative agriculture because he believes it so strongly and has to sort of figure his way on how to make it logistically work. And it's not easy, uh, but he's making it happen. And he's got a dream for the bigger picture and he's got a vision for the bigger picture. And um, he's got a plan for how it's going to work. So hopefully um, that plan will translate to other people as well and that his message will help other people and also, he's got a message of just how you can help support it. Um, you know, if we're not all ranchers, right? But if we have a passion for this and and a willing or a, a desire to be part of the greater good to help the soil, help the environment, there's a way we can help as well. So let's hear what Kevin Muno from Perennial Pastures Ranch has to say. So Kevin, I'm dying to hear. You go to college, you get a business administration degree, you're you're out working in the world, and for some reason you decide to co-found Perennial Pastures Ranch and start a cattle ranch. So what what happened? What was the motivation here? Yeah, uh, so really for me, it, it started with uh, the paleo diet uh, as an athlete. Um, I had a trainer who was really big into the paleo diet. He turned me on to Dr. Lauren Cordain's book and I read through it. And for me, the whole um, evolutionary eating thing just made so much sense. You know, I always had a pretty big admiration for nature. And I always feel like nature uh, has a lot of inherent wisdom in it, you know, and we, you know, we're more part of nature. I mean, we're still animals, but we're more part of nature. And I feel like the closer you could get to nature, uh, the more efficient and, you know, better life you can live. So 
I got really into eating grass-fed beef. And then after college, um, I took a job in software sales uh, for one year. And it was with a company that was uh, very successful. So we were able to uh, build up a little nest egg. And I got to ask myself the big questions in life. What do I really want to do? What's going to make me happy? And I have some really early childhood memories going up to the Eastern Sierras with my grandpa uh, to Mammoth Mountain and, you know, being outside and being happiest in nature. So I said, you know, how do I find a career that combines food, being out in nature? And um, so that led me down a path of um, gardening and, and permaculture and kind of came across permaculture and was really, you know, interested in growing all my own food. And I went to my wife at the time and, you know, said, uh, you know, babe, we can just uh, uh, subsist on, on land. I won't have to work, you know, and we can just grow all our own food and, you know, just that'll, that'll be it. That'll be good. And she said, okay, well, see how that goes, you know, and then soon found out that there's not too many people that are just growing their own food and not working for a living, especially if you want to have a family. So I had to choose a bigger career in that and just uh, started partnering with people in the space in permaculture and regenerative agriculture uh, that were really um, doing big things in the space, particularly at scale. So uh, I took my PDC, which is my permaculture design course, uh, from Josh Robinson at the San Diego Sustainable Living Institute in 2013. And my eyes were open to this whole new way that humans could be a positive impact on nature and we can build soil and, you know, have a, a good relationship with nature. And then I got into working with Mark Shepard, who wrote a book called Restoration Agriculture. And he um, has been one of the guys to scale permaculture and trees and animals to, you know, a larger scale. And then the more I got into that whole sphere, um, the farther I went, I, you know, came across holistic management, which is started by Alan Savory in Africa. And I had the the pleasure, uh, and, and, and benefit of working with, um, his son, Roger Savory. So I learned a lot about ranching then that was in 2016, uh, that I did that. So, um, I guess one of my strengths is I, you know, go to the best in the yeah, business and I say, like Hey, can, can I work for you? And I just learned a whole bunch and, one thing led to another and, you know, came across this opportunity to buy a local cattle company here in San Diego in uh, 2019. And the transaction took place in 2020. And uh, we bought uh, a, a local cattle company that had 16,000 acres of lease ground here in San Diego County. And we also um, were able to acquire the herd that they had, which is at the time about 270 uh, cow-calf pairs. And then we've uh, we've essentially been implementing our regenerative agriculture business plan ever since then, putting in more fence, putting in more water, developing a, a meat business, which is uh, Perennial Pastures Ranch, which we're now in six farmers markets here in San Diego County and uh, soon going to be developing our online business. So that's kind of the the uh, the, the short story to okay. how I started out as an athlete to where I'm at today. As a yeah, ranch. I love connecting those dots as an athlete focusing on nutrition and then from that way getting just not not just connected to food but connected to where food comes from and how it's how it's raised and but then going beyond the food part to the land part now that's what i find so interesting about about what you're doing is you didn't just jump in to start a cattle company i mean it doesn't do you justice to say it's a cattle company or it's a beef company because you're really trying right. to revitalize this land now i have to say i was fortunate enough to come out and meet you at the ranch and you gave us a great tour of the ranch and it was wonderful to see i mean it's beautiful and 
and just vast and to see the, the, the cattle there. But at the same time, like it's intimidating. It's dry. It looks brittle. It doesn't look like you can really um, just snap your fingers and have regenerative agriculture. So you really had to have a motivation to want to restore this land and the imagination to do it. So I guess there's a lot there, but um, tell me what, what really hits you most about saying, I don't just want to raise cattle. I want to, I want to help the land. How did that really connect for you the most? Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess it kind of started, you know, from a spiritual perspective, I, I feel, um, you know, very connected to the land. And, and the more that I learned that I myself and putting together a team could actually improve land, it, it became something that was beyond just, you know, the science of soil or producing nutrient dense food, it became, um, you know, it became uh, an exercise in, in becoming part of a greater whole for me. And that just made me happier. You know, it, yeah. it um, you know, tied a circle around all these things. And, you know, I, it just feels so good to, to go out there and know that you can work with these animals, you know, to improve the land. And really all it comes down to is management and design you know, and, and, and the fortitude to see it through. So for me, it became an exercise, you know, more mentally of, okay, um, I can feel good about this career. I can feel connected to a greater whole and that, you know, we're not just improving the land, but we're improving, improving rural community. We're doing rural development We're we're, you know, tying the urban and rural, you know, folks together and creating a conversation around food, which I think a lot of problems in our society today stem around, you know, people not sitting down together, you know, anymore over a glass of wine or a beer and a nice meal and, you know, being able to like hash things out. Mm -hmm. So to me, it try to draw as much circles around things as I can. And for me, food was at the nexus of a lot of these issues that we see in our society today. So. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a great point. When you talk about people not really understanding each other, understanding sort of what they're doing, I guess you could say, or where their motivations are. Uh, you know, we can learn a lot about that just by sitting down with people. So you get the two sides, right? Meat is bad or meat is good and you're killing the planet or we're saving the planet or, you know, all, you know, Bill Gates, all meat should be um, fake meat basically versus you've got, you know, the sacred cow behind you that we can really save the planet by, by focusing on regenerative agriculture, these polar opposites. So, I mean, you sort of have stepped into that minefield in a way. So how do you, how do you process that when you see so much news talking about, um, that, that cows are destroying the atmosphere and contributing to greenhouse gases and that we would do the planet such a favor by getting rid of cattle and going to fake meat. Like now that you've committed your life you know, your, 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 um, your livelihood to doing this, that's gotta, that's gotta hurt. And, and I'm curious how you respond to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, again, it kind of comes back to that whole evolutionary study and, you know, the study of how natural systems and the planet has thrived for, you know, millions of years, you know, and where we started to where we're at today and started with a pile of rocks and life started colonizing those rocks and creating soil and the fungi were a part of that. And, you know, then we came along, you know, a couple million years ago and, started doing our things and mammals and everything just started to evolve and, you know, live in its niche. And, um, you know, so for me, it's, 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 uh, nature has always kind of gotten it right. Nature always bats last and, you know, there's no vegan ecologies and the way to really truly build soil is with animal integration. And so, 
Um, we've always, you know, killed things The you know, animals have always killed each other. You know, even if you're living a vegan lifestyle, you're still, um, in a large way, if you're eating from large monocultures, eradicating ecosystems that used to be habitat for animals, like look at the Midwest, for example, used to be one big giant oak savanna. And now we grow monocultures of corn and soy in there, which are the basis for a lot of the, the grain based diet. So again, it's, it's, just once you kind of understand that wisdom of nature and you've, you know, studied how the planet evolved and, you know, it, it's gotten and been functioning, you know, with us and would function without us if we were here, you know, and, and keep, you know, building soil and aggregating. And it's just hard to deny the, the, the science and, and all of that, you know, data and, and just years of it happening, you know, by, you know, something that's so new, which is really agriculture. If you look at, grain-based or annual-based agriculture. It's only been around for 10,000 years, which is, you know, like 0.000001% of, you know, like us being existing on this planet. So, yeah, so regenerative agriculture just made sense. It was like, oh, yeah, that's how bison or, you know, wildebeest move across grasslands. Oh, okay, you know, and they rotate like this and that builds soil and, you know, the deepest, you know, soils in our worlds now formed that way you know the midwest again had you know large herbivores on it and evolved and that's why it's the you know breadbasket of the the country the california central valley was the same way elk and large herds of herbivores moving across that and the, the valley oak you know so it was more of a savanna like ecosystem and you know we've been farming that you know for quite a long time too and it provides a lot of the food for our country so um i just kind of try to take people there and try to draw a larger hole around their very um, niche argument or their niche perspective and then, you know, get them out to the ranch because seeing is believing, you know, and if you can see the cow, how it is and how it grazes and how it lives most of its life, you know, out on the land and it, you know, takes one, you know, trip, you know, obviously, or in our case, hopefully eventually it won't never take a trip for the ranch if we process it on the ranch. But as it is now, it has one, you know, two hour, um, um, truck ride to the, you know, slaughter facility and has, you know, one bad day. And even that day, you know, we try to take care of them as much as we can, where we really do low stress livestock handling practices. Our slaughter facility loses uh temple grand and methodology to really make sure that even that day is not too bad too. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I like to take the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, now, now let's shift a little bit though and get into sort of the practical nature of this because like I said, for you to take a look at that that land that you that you have your business on now, your cattle company, and to, to think where you could go with it, to, to dream what you could turn it into as a regenerative ranch, I mean, that, that takes imagination. And, and I guess my question is like, how hard is it? Like, what are the hurdles? Because you hear, you know, we've had Diana Rogers on the show. We've had Nicolette Hahn Nyman on the show. We hear, we know, we've heard of the benefits and how great things can be if you get to the point where you're using regenerative agriculture and sustaining it that way. But to get from point A to point B seems like it could be pretty intimidating. Um, so tell me, you know, some of the hurdles that you've had to come across, what you think the average rancher would have to be able to figure out and what the challenges are for them to be able to transition their cattle business over uh, to something that's regenerative because sort of we got to figure out how to scale this right in order to really make it save the right. planet for sure yeah well a uh, business partner of mine Graham Hand has done a lot of study studies on this and there's a professor Doug McKenzie Moore who's kind of studied 
the barriers to adoption of, of certain movements. And Graham studied it and said, really, it's, it's, um, comes down to an infrastructure issue. The, the way you do this, you know, is you install fence, you install water pipes, so you can move cows around, uh, with the right behavior, the right impact at the right times. And you can leave fields resting for a long period of time. So it's a big infrastructure push. That's probably the hardest part. And if I would do it all over again, you know, this is my first really big go at it, but if I would do it all over again, I'd build the fencing and the infrastructure layers first. And, uh, I think what's really going to help at scale is, is people just continuing to have success in it. You know, Gabe Brown, um, is one of the big, um, uh, leaders, you know, in the field and he's very transparent with his numbers and he's, you know, he's profitable. He's, he's, you know, quite profitable, quite more profitable than the average farmer. And, and it's only going to take a matter of time, you know, to see your neighbor making more money than you are and you're plus or minus 3% every year. And, you know, it, uh, you know, the, the, the economics are really going to change things once ranchers start making the money that they should be making for supplying the nutrient density that they're supplying to, you know, families. And when people start to learn about that and create a true relationship with their rancher, and then if we can actually finally, you know, even maybe let's say crazy idea, but pay farmers and ranchers to install green infrastructure. And what I mean by green infrastructure is, you know, two to three feet uh, deep of topsoil across watersheds. And instead of putting a new dam here in California, we can install topsoil at that rate. We're gonna slow the, slow the water down when it rains. We might create more rain because 40% of rainfall actually falls as uh, um, you know part of the small water cycle from plants evapotranspiring. And if we have more green living things growing on the ground and actually creating clouds, we might actually create more rain. California, according to the records, used to have a lot more summer rain. We don't now. Our rain mostly falls in January, February, and March. Um, when the Spanish first came here, they saw green, you know, in the, in the summertime, we barely have any green now in the summertime. So, um, yeah, so just kind of those cascading effects, hopefully, you know, there's, there's kind of anchor ranches, uh, like ours that can get a foothold and then create little, you know, education centers where we come in and teach people how to do this. Cause one, one cool thing about the regenerative movement is it's not, like, you know, hey, this is mine and I want to hold on to it and it's uh, this is my IP and I'm going to protect it. You know, the movement as a whole is a very abundant movement and, you know, there's people out there constantly teaching about it because the reason we got into this was actually, you know, to make land better. And I don't think any rancher wants to make their land worse. It's just one of those industries that, um, you know, is, is slow to move and, and for, you know, good reasons, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, you know, they, they've done certain things, you know, and it more or less has, has worked or not worked, but, um, once, you know, another way is so much better and then the new generation comes in, it's just only a matter of time, I think, before people change. Yes. Yeah, so that's interesting. As, as the new generation comes in, it sounds like you think it's inevitable, which would be great, but, but you brought up money. So let's talk about money for a second. You know, um, it's a big capital investment to have all the fences, to put in all the water piping, to to have the infrastructure that you you need. It's a it's a capital investment. So for somebody who you know has been in the cattle business for generations and is basically making just you know just putting food on the table every day, just paying the mortgage, just getting by, um, that type of capital investment can be pretty daunting. So um how do you think people can do it if they don't necessarily have the capital off the bat to do it yeah it's a good point you know um there's all sorts of different situations it comes back down i think to your individual context and 
your land base, your resource base, you know, uh, sort of your skill sets, I, I guess, um, you know, one of, one of, uh, my strengths, you know, going to business school at San Diego is that I had a business background and through the years I learned how to raise some money. So I, I you know, didn't start this with any family money. I don't have a background in ranching at all. I learned it all from myself and from mentors, but I was able to get a motivated group of investors together to purchase a company that had some scale. You need scale and livestock to really make a good go of it. Um, but uh, one nice thing is there are other models that could allow smaller producers to come together and pool their resources to do the infrastructure, or to do the processing. You know, the infrastructure is the one key piece on the land, but there's other sort of infrastructure items along the value chain that are crucial too for farmers to make more money. And that's, you know, slaughter facilities, access to processing, um, value adding infrastructure. Um, one, one great thing we have here in Southern California is the resources we're located, you know, you know, next to three, you know, 5 million, you know, 8 million people here in Southern California, depending upon which circle you want to draw. So the ability to go and, you know, um, uh, sell direct to the consumer is very good. Whereas some ranchers, let's say, you know, I have, we have an investor that has a, a remote ranch up in Northern Montana and, you know, the town of like 17 people, you know, and, uh, they're eight hours away from a processing facility that they could take their beef to. And then again, you know, I think Montana has like 500,000 people total in the state. So, um, every model has got to be different, but again, their cost of land is a lot less. So, you know, and, and, and maybe their cost of labor is a little bit less too, cause it's cheaper to live in that area. So their cost of production can be lower. Um, you know, and maybe they could sell into markets like California. So there's a lot of gray in that question for sure, mm -hmm. but you got to kind of look at your strengths, your resources, you know, where's your capital coming from? You know, if you have land. One thing you could do is leverage the land. You know, it's nice to have, you know, land that's not leveraged and, you know, debt free, but you know, it doesn't take too much leverage to get into this game, you know? So there's a lot of different strategies I think that you can develop, but you got to do the hard work of, you know, putting a uh, pencil and pen to paper and then getting a, an Excel spreadsheet going and uh, starting to model it out, you know, and uh, um, it's hard though. It's hard to know how much the fencing is going to cost for me. Again, my, one of my um, negatives is, you know, I didn't really, I hadn't really done this at scale yet. So being able to, you know, come in and exactly know how much fence to install or, you know, where to put it or how much it was going to cost. That was one of the downfalls. So maybe that's a strength of another rancher is they kind of know that already. They just got to figure out the capital piece. So right. it's kind of a combination of all those different things. I'd yeah. Say. Interesting. You come at it from two different directions, not really knowing the ranching business all that well, but knowing what you have to do to make it regenerative versus knowing the ranching business very well, but not knowing the regenerative side very well. So those are two completely different equations there. You came from one where established ranches will be coming from another. And I guess that's where a lot of these consultants can help. And you mentioned a number of names already of people who are out there as con uh, consultants who can really help those ranchers kind of find the way. Now, what about government? Like you, you mentioned earlier about government. It'd be nice if they were they were paying people to a new to help the environment by by adding um, perennial grasses and being able to hold water better. Do you think the government has a vital role in this? And should we be, you know, yelling from our the, our rooftops at our representatives, at our senators, um, at the administration that this should be a focus of the environmental push? Yeah, for sure. I think so. You know, I think regenerative agriculture. Um, 
needs to be a national conversation for sure because again i think it's at the foundation of a lot of the issues we see you know in society today whether it's water or you know the obesity epidemic or you know the diabetes you know issues uh, a lot of the things that you cover in your in your practice um so yeah i mean i'm 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 kind of a localist kind of guy so i'd like to see maybe more things come from the state level uh you know if if we make a big broad push at the federal level going to have to be in some very key levered areas like one thing actually i think they could do at the federal level um is just end the 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 corn and and uh, gabe brown talks about this but the corn and soy subsidies you know it's just that one change alone would probably make grass fed beef you know much um much more competitive from a price standpoint than grain fed beef and overnight people would you know be looking for more economical ways to um, you know, to do their, their business, whether they're a grain farmer or whether they're a rancher, because, you know, we know grains affect beef uh, and, and the beef industry quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. So um, probably that would be my biggest change at the federal level. But then I'd rather see um, more change at the state level, because uh, every state has its own sort of set of ecological issues. You know, California, for example, um, you know, people are environmentally inclined here, but um, you know, they need the truth in terms of really what's going to create change. And there's some really good groups that are working on that, like Kiss the Ground and doing some good lobbying. And I've heard Gavin Newsom has heard about it, you know, but again, I'm not seeing a ton of work, you know, on the ground in terms of, you know, grazing forests regeneratively again, or selectively harvesting the forest to reduce the wildfire. Like we know how to do these things. And it's very frustrating that we're not like putting all of our attention on it because it's, you know, these fires cost billions of dollars of damage, you know, every year. And it's just, you think, you know, we, we put some attention to it and create jobs and, you know, all that, but yeah, there's so much we could do. And, but I'd like to see it at the state level, federal level, ending the corn soy subsidies. And so, yeah, policy does for sure have, it's part of the whole, right? Like we're talking about holistic management. We can't operate, you know, as, as, you know, our, like, you know, we have food regulations, we have this, we have that. So we have to take that into account if we're going to truly be managing the whole. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up fire, which is obviously such a big problem here in California and in so many drought stricken areas that it, it does seem like properly managed land reduces the fire risks. I mean, that, so that really should be a top, top priority. Um, cause these acres and acres yeah. just keep Those burning. Ladder fires, you know, a lot of people, I think, you know, like there's a good uh, one of my colleagues, Brittany Colbush, is doing some really good work in Ojai and she's using sheep and goats and kind of forested areas and re- reducing those opportunities for ladder fire where the cows or goats or sheep can kind of browse around the trees and raise the height of where the branches kind of come down and touch the ground is key because usually the fires are stuck on the grass or the brush and then they'll get up into the canopies. And once they're in the canopies, you get these massive you know, climax fires that just burn through the tops of the canopies. Well, when the natives were managing this land, they, you know, they were part of that whole, they thought of nature as their house. And they liked, I heard a Kumiai elder say this one time, we, we like to have a clean house. Mm-hmm. So they would come and purposely set fires or kind of move animals in a way that, you know, where they were put hunt, you know, hunting pressure on different herds. And, you know, they kind of had an intact ecology at that point. And they had, you know, kind of more manicured landscape. So we just have to get back that change in mindset that, you know, there, there's this whole movement of environmentalists that wanted to protect land and just leave it to nature. Well, that was all in good when I think developers were out to develop every inch of California and we did save some open spaces, but 
we now know that we can come in and actually make those landscapes better. And we're living in the Anthropocene and there's barely any, you know, part of this, you know, planet that we haven't touched and affected. So nature's, you know, especially in the dry West, not going to heal itself. So we have to come in and actually do the hard work of the intervention to get the desired effect that we want, but we have to decide on what that is as a group. And that's, you know, as you know, very hard work, which is why, uh, folks like yourself are so important to kind of get the word out there. You have a large reach, so it's important to kind of, you know, get, you know, all the folks that are spreading the news on page, because the more people that we get exposed to this and the more that we can develop a, you know, a, um, holistic goal together of like, okay, like nobody wants to live in a desert, you know, mm-hmm. We want flowing streams. We want healthy forests. You know, we want places to recreate for our kids that are beautiful, that, you know, aren't so hot, maybe have some shade. You know, the more we can kind of create that goal and vision together, the more, you know, we can kind of enact it, put the actions in place to go do it. Well, so what kind of advice can you give to somebody then if they wanted to, you know, they're not a rancher, but they, but they eat meat and, um, you know, we, there's no certification for regenerative agriculture. It's, you know, you can't go to your local grocery store and get regenerative ag raised beef. Um, so what kind of advice can you give to somebody, how they can help further the movement, how they can support the movement? Yeah, sure. So, so there is a couple new certifications that are coming out. There's a regenerative organic certification that's coming out. Um, it's, uh, pioneered by a lot of different folks, Maple Hill Organic, I think Patagonia threw some money in, uh, Dr. Bronner's David Bronner, who I I know has done a lot of work to kind of put that forth. So there is some certification development going. Um, I'm a supporter of their work. I like to see results-based stuff on the ground, not just practice-based, um, certifications. I, I, I want, you know, there's very clear ways that we can know if the land is regenerating or not. And we need to incentivize that. So the the simplest way, you know, and we say this at the farmer's market is just come out for a tour and we'll be transparent with where we're at, what we're doing, where we're headed, the animals, the genetics, because you're right, it doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, to the, to the person who's, you know, who's the, you're just a regular meat eater, who's trying to support and see more of this, just, you know, one thing, think about, you know, Sometimes folks can get a little, you know, price shock when they come to the farmer's market. Think about the nutrient density per dollar, right? We have to start getting to that mindset, right? You know, um, pay the pay the farmer, pay the doctor later, right? So if you're <laughs> if you're paying for nutrient density of of food, you know, we're we're finding through some of this nutrient density science that Dan Kittrich and those folks are working on at the Bionutrient Food Association. You know, they're coming out with this meter and trying to put the power of nutrient density into the hands of your average consumer. So I, I envision a day, hopefully here in the not too short-term future um, or long-term future that the farmers, you know, people are having these devices and they go up to a stand and, you know, they test the produce or, you know, they could take a sample of our meat and right away it kind of gives them, okay, here's the definition of nutrient density for this product. Here's, you know, the nutrient profile. We now know that they're, through this research, there's a correlation between soil health and nutrient density. So think about that, you know, think about, um, you know, where your dollars are going, but you know, how, how they're being spent from a nutrient density perspective, because the more nutrients you eat, the more full you are. I'm sure you probably cover this, you know, a lot. So some of those things I would just, you know, tell people is start to get up on some of those conversations, you know, think about those things and, uh, yeah, just try to meet your, 
your local rancher, follow some of these certifications. There's a lot just coming out in the way of regenerative. So I think if you're paying attention to it, you're attuned to it, you're following on Google or Twitter or whatever, you know, there, there's going to be stuff that comes up. So just, you know, buy in, start paying attention to the movement. Yeah. I think it'll help. Yeah. So if, if people do want to find out more about you or get in touch with you, how can they, how can they find you? Yep. Perennialpasturesranch.com is our website. We're working on that to get some products uploaded on that. So you guys can order from us online soon here in um, uh, Southern California. We're going to offer uh, local delivery uh, right now. If you're in Southern California, we're at uh, six farmers markets, San Marcos, Lucadia, Carlsbad, Oceanside, um, Little Italy, and we're launching um, Rancho Santa Fe soon here shortly. We want to go into Vista. We'd like to be in 10 to 30 markets here over the next year in Southern California. Um, and then our Instagram, so Perennial Pastures with a dot in the middle is our Instagram. That's where we're most active on social media. Uh, we're not on Twitter or Facebook, so just pretty pictures of cows <laughs> and stuff, you know, explaining our our fun soil stuff and all that that we do. So uh, that, that's probably the easiest way. But. All right. Very good. Well, I, I really consider myself fortunate that, that my good friend met you at the Lucadia's Farmer's Market and connected with you and we were able to meet you and go for a tour and learn about all the amazing things you're doing. So uh, thanks for taking the time to join me today and, and give us a little insight on on sort of what it takes to to be a regenerative agriculture rancher and, and the thought process that goes into it, because I know it's not easy, but gosh, it is so important for the future of our planet and for the future of our food environment as well. So thank you very much. And I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Next, we're going to hear from Adam McCurdy. Now, uh, I guess I'm going to say buckle up for this one because Adam is enthusiastic and passionate about what he does. He loves telling stories and He's going to go through a roller coaster of a whole bunch of different topics and, and getting his position on things. But first, let me tell you who Adam is. So he's the director of farm productions at Coastal Root Farms, which you'll find at coastalrootsfarm.org, um, C-O-A-S-T-A-L-R-O-O-T-S farm.org. And he's been uh, in ag for 20 years, um, cultivating between two acres and 120 acres currently managing 70 acres and doing it in a way with dynamic, um, organic production and really focusing on the land and focusing on systems that improve the land, not worried about getting the maximum amount of produce uh, per acre, but worrying about doing the maximum amount of good, growing the right produce, produce in the right way. And it, really their, their whole mission at Coastal Roots is is um, nourishing the community, fighting food insecurity, and improving the earth. Um, and I think that's so great. I mean, they've got a pay-what-you-can uh, farm stand, which is exactly what it says. You pay whatever you think you can pay for the vegetables, for the eggs, for the wonderful food they have there. Their mission is, is uh, above and beyond anything. And, and luckily, they're local to me, so I've had the ability to go there, buy their food, tour their farm, um, and it is amazing. So we're going to get a different perspective of things, you know, focusing more on sort of the vegetable production and differentiating that from the huge, you know, monoculture, uh, big tilled farms that are probably doing more harm than good. So, so buckle up for this roller coaster here uh, with some good stories and some good perspective with Adam McCurdy. All right. So Adam, we've, we've just heard from two uh, ranchers. And I love the quote from Daniel that ranchers are the uh, original environmentalists. And I know with Kevin, you've actually worked quite a bit with him. And so now I want to transition from the ranching side of things 
to the the agriculture side of things, growing plants, and but still with the the focus on taking care of the environment, because it seems like such of a focus has been on cattle production, that cattle production is evil or cattle production can be our savior with regenerative agriculture. And what I think maybe isn't discussed as much is growing vegetables, growing plants, growing other types of food, which also falls into the sort of the same category of, is it good for the environment? So, so give us sort of your overarching view of what does it mean to grow food in a way that is good for the environment, takes care of people and takes care of the earth. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Um, Appreciate that. That one um, is definitely going to take us over the half hour that we have to share together here today. Um, so, um, yeah, that's a, a big, a big uh, idea to chew on. Um, and I think I'm going to just um, start off with um, mentioning, you know, originally um, started farming. Well, first got into it in um, in Maine. Um where uh, it was, that was kind of the beginning of my um, hunger relief and food recovery um, approach. And I worked with an amazing old fella who had been with the uh, Maine Organic Farmers, um, MOFCA, Maine Organic Farming Growers Association or something like that for eons. I think he actually helped find it, found it. Um, and um, I was working in the recycling center as a young AmeriCorps volunteer um, uh, who moved across the country. And I would go to different counties with him and we were gleaning and he started to show me the difference of a field that was managed conventionally and a field that was managed organically. And I said, well, what, what's conventional mm -hmm. and what's organic and why is convention, meaning the regular, what's called this chemical agriculture. And it just started this whole kind of right. launch, which is how I got into it. I mean, I was doing environmental education and trail building. Granted, we're talking about a 19 year old Adam at this point. Um, and, uh, I was um, really, you know, I'd sit at the edge of potato fields eating a sandwich after doing some trail, uh, some timber stand management on potato, on potato bread. And I'd say, what's our food system really all about? Do, do these potatoes in this bread, right. which I just got because it was like the moistest, yummiest, chewiest white bread you could have. Uh, <laughs> no nutrient value at all. I thought because it was potatoes, maybe a little bit more than Wonder Bread, but I don't know. Um, jury's out on that one. Um <laughs> And so uh, just the food system connection. And I thought, where, where is our food coming from? And what, why is the conventional soil all cracked and looks devoid of life? And why is the organic soil look like a weedy mess? Uh, black, black gold with weeds all over the place. I digress, yeah. but I just kind of wanted to open it up there um, to get back to your question of managing organic production um, in a uh, regenerative method. I was going to say regenerative sustainable, but right. so t over 20 years ago, when I got into this certified organic was just becoming a federal standard. Um, farmers markets were kind of on the decline. Uh, I watched it go from decline. Nobody knew what kale was. Um, and there was only a couple to sell to, to the market getting flooded and too many farmers markets. It wasn't worth the farmer's time to come and sell there anymore because where they could come and do a $2,000 day and activate your crew, harvest, transport, display, market, sell, adrenal, 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 you'd leave, you'd take your $3,000 worth of goods and you'd leave selling $500 worth because there was just, there was now a Tuesday market and a Friday market. And 
people no longer didn't know what kale was. They said, oh, it's nice to see you have the winter boar kale. Do you have Lassanato kale? Do you have any of the red Russian kale? And that just brought a tear to my eye. I was so happy. I, I was able to watch this, this movement. But it was certified organic. It was sustainable. Um, regenerative wasn't even being tossed around uh, 20 years ago. Um, it sure is now, um, which I'm happy to see because when I say sustainable, the thought of what are we sustaining? So I'll go into some of the information that's right. out there and what are we sustaining if we're sustainably growing? Well, we're sustaining a system that says that we have 60 harvests left, depending on the source that you look at, right? I mean, 60, 100, 120, 160, 30, 10. <laughs> we're in COVID, right? We've got 10. No, some I say don't know. 10. <laughs> no, but it does go to that, like, how many years does it take to build an inch of topsoil? Right. And you, there's a million and one sources out there, which is so, right. so great. I'm so glad that we're having these conversations. And to your point, the ranching is so entirely different than like annual row crop vegetables. So any orcharding that we're doing, anything right. that we're doing in our eight acre food forest is much more tied into like a perennial carbon sequestration um, situation. Whereas when you get into annual vegetables, you know, I remember 20 years ago listening to NPR while I was and hearing the NPR news release. This is 20 years ago. Tilling your soil releases carbon into the atmosphere. Are organic farmers the cause of our demise in our on our planet? And so I was like, oh, what am I doing? You know, and so here we're having continued conversations. So Yeah. So that that's really interesting that so no long, you know, organic had this halo around it, that it was like the the one way to go. Um but then it shows that organic isn't everything because organic can still release cor uh, carbon into the into the atmosphere, and that's where this regenerative comes from, trying to help sequester carbon. But you used a couple terms that I want to just clarify. So annuals, perennials, and ag forest. Give us a quick definition of those, so so the listener can understand. Okay. Kind of so what an you're talking annual about. row crop vegetable or an annual vegetable, you grow it in your garden. You see, you sow that seed that that's that year that spring you get it that spring or that summer a radish take you 30 days it's an annual in the brassicaceae family so annual vegetables you sow them that season you get them that season okay a bunch of varying timelines um perennial uh gonna perennially keep happening so on and on and on in between those two is biennial um which would be like a carrot um parsley Although a lot of times parsley will sprout out in the first year, everything um, everything can sprout out in the first year. It's a process called vernalization, which triggers the the innate in, um, knowledge of the plant to say, "Hey, it's time for me to go to seed." So it might be stress, might be anything, um, and then agroforestry um, or food forest um, are terms that are used, um, you know, pretty loosely. Um, they're very prevalent in permaculture settings, uh, in homesteading settings. It's really about the taking the uh, utilizing the land and a natural structure to work with the land and, and produce in that regard. Now, oftentimes it's missing, you know, especially like and I mean, some of the best growers are homesteaders. And I would like to get my seeds and my rootstock from homesteaders across the boards. Um, but homesteaders and folks that are going to straight permaculture for the environment around them are not always looking at that well, what's my return on investment going to be? How much does the seed cost? How much does my fertility cost? You know, it, it, once I right. make this move and I'm committed to hand weeding, what does that mean for my labor staffing? Um, all of that is different if you're talking about, you know, like we were talking about organic farmers had the halo, wait, maybe they're tilling. Organic can take a lot more tillage. 
um, because you're you're controlling your weed pest with tillage. You're um, you're terminating a crop with disking or tilling. Um, you're not using these um, uh, chemicals that can be used for burn down and kill down. So on that note, and I know I just tangented, but on that note, folks say, oh, tilling is bad. Oh, got to go no-till. Some of the largest systems of no-till that we have in this nation are more chemically intensive than any other production. So you don't get to just, sorry, it's not that easy. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it's really interesting though, because part of what I think we need to try and do is simplify things for the end yeah. user, for the consumer, so that they can sort of vote with their pocketbooks, right? That's what we say about yeah. buying better meat, you know, buying from ranches like Kevin's that really focuses on, on, on the earth, on the ground, on the soil, on being regenerative. So how can someone know if what they're buying is from a place that is taking care of the land. It's easy for coastal roots because you've got your own farm stand and you know you give farm tours, and which I've been on. If anybody's near the Encinitas area, you have to check it out because it's amazing. All the all the variety and the diversification and the and the chickens and like the just the produce is so amazing. But how can someone know that? What's a take home they can do to say I want to support places like this? Um, rather than supporting the large corporations that are really destroying our land in the name of producing as much food as cheaply yeah, as possible. Yeah, great, great. Uh, that that's the that's the thick old nut that we have to crack here, um, you know. And that is um, really a tough uh, tough answer. Um, a, get to know your farmer. Um, that's that's the best bit. Then maybe even you get to spend some time on the land, and that's yeah. the that's as nourishing as anything else. Um, um, but not everybody is, is, uh, privy to that. So farmer's markets offer that opportunity Buy local and from your local farmer, you're supporting your regional food system at that point. Um, even if they're not certified organic now certified organic, one of the reasons there was the huge pushback, it takes a lot, like a lot of my day is focusing on regulations, making sure that we're adhering to the County of San Diego Depart department of agriculture, um, making sure that we're adhering to um, San Diego Irrigated Lands Group, making sure that we're adhering to CDFA, California Department of Food and Agriculture, making sure that we're adhering to CCOF, who is our organic certifying body. Um, so it's, it brought about a good streamline. I'm glad it's there, but it's super cumbersome. And if you have a small farm, you're not going to go through that process. I'm sorry. It's just you, you're not going to choose to go into that bureaucracy. Um, I stuck with it when it was first going through all of that because I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to help the statistics. I wanted to put that energy in and really be an organic grower that was that did have a gleaning program and did sell at farmers markets and did have a thousand member CSA and did work with local food banks. And I wanted to keep that there. But it, it was really I was like, I'm not making it just like at Coastal Roots. We're not making any more off of our direct sale product because it's organic. We're, we're just not. We're, we're OK. And the same for sustainable regenerative. It doesn't bring you any more money, but it costs you more labor and effort. So do you think do you think things need to be put in place to reward systems like yours and maybe take away from other systems that are doing harm to the environment as opposed to you that's sort of that's benefiting? Oh uh, yeah, the that'd be fantastic. <laughs> I think Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just tell you how to right. do it, right? How do we make that happen? There. Um let me get back. I, I want to talk about that, but I want to just finish off how the end user can make their choice. Um so yes, that's know your please, farmer, please. go to your farmer's market, 
buy from the little pop-up on the corner, even if it's not a farmer's market, because it's somebody that's growing on land real close to you. Now, if you have chronic issues of anything, you know, and somebody's growing in the backyard and you don't know, like you're super sensitive to heavy metals, you're super sensitive to this or that, be, be mindful, check, check it out. See, you know, but there, there, you know, your grower, you can talk to them about it and you can say, did you test for heavy metals before you started growing and selling? No. Okay, cool. I'm going to bow out on this. Or hey, do you mind if I sample it and I'll give you some, give you some reports. And that's awesome. That's community working together. The other thing is, um, because organic has become such a trusty label, go for it. But it doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. Um, just like pasture raised mm. or free range uh, on your chicken eggs. It doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. The regulations for free range means that the chicken is seeing the light of day. It doesn't mean you're not supporting a CAFO. So, um, but do that. That's a good one. Yeah. And here's what I always say. Trader Joe's organic, different than Costco organic, different than uh, Vaughn's organic. It's all under the same uh, umbrella, but you might have, you know, Trader Joe's, they do a really cool process in how they do it. And I almost started selling to them when I had small pumpkins, but it's just like they, they, it's a contract. They're working with different growers than anybody else. It, you know, those growers might have a relationship with Trader Joe's and with Vons, but it's a different, it's a different setup altogether. But where I'm going is if all you can get is Dole organic salad mix, it's Dole. Dole is still doing a lot of the harm that Dole was doing before. Dole is also doing a lot of research dollars into organic yeah. and regenerative, maybe selfishly because they want a steady supply, just like General Mills. General Mills actually has partnered with, um, well, loosely partnered with uh, Farmer uh, Brown um, on supporting Farmer Brown's uh, for-profit consulting aspect about how grain growers can convert to regenerative because they want it. That's selfish. They want a steady mm. supply. Well, I hope it's not fully selfish. I hope that they have a, right. a leader in a CEO type position. That's like, you know what? We got to stop looking at this land. Like it's something that we get to exploit and it's put here for us. And we need to go back and just start to take care of this land. And we are so large that we can make a huge impact. That's what I hope, but I'm going to say it's selfish. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to say it's dollar bottom line. selfish. <laughs> but I don't know the CEO for Dole. And I'm, I'm, uh, that's not scientifically proven. So what I'd say is they're still doing all that. However, they could go and buy up an entire swath of the last arable piece of land um, that uh, cost will not be an issue for them. So if they decide to do yeah. that and they're growing 4,000 acres of um, organic mixed lettuce, that's 4,000 acres of lettuce that's being grown that's in our food system that is a part of a watershed that is not using synthetic chemicals. It's not using genetically engineered seed and it's not using synthetic chemicals. So go for it. It's not going to taste like the salad makes you come and get it at our farm stand. I can tell you that. And we don't have those fancy bags yeah. that make it so it lasts longer. You're going to get it, you know, maximum three days old from us. Um, and uh, maybe two hours old, maybe three minutes old. Um, so that's where that can come in. So I digress. I could go on and on about that one, but, um, Vote with your dollar, put your money where your love is, get to know your farmer, connect with your land, yeah. and then start supporting your local um, grocery store that's, that has organic, even if it's twice as much. And, you know, that head of lettuce is probably going to be old because it was a $5 head of lettuce. It sat there for a week before someone came to buy right. it because they only bought it because they were committed to the right. mission or they had chronic illness and knew that if there were trace, trace bits of um, pesticides on there or... Again, they're privileged and don't have to worry about the $5 for the head of lettuce. So, so all of that. All right, good point.
All right. I, I love your enthusiasm and your answers just show like how enthusiastic you are about this, which is great. And so I want to transition for one yeah. second though to your chickens. I love your chickens. My, I love when my kids got to come out and meet a lot of your chickens when you first got them. And we, we brought, um, food that you use for chick that you use to feed the chickens. And you definitely have, you mentioned that free range doesn't mean anything, but the way you have your chickens live and, and their eggs is clearly different. So tell us what people should be looking for to make sure they're getting chickens that are raised the way chickens are supposed to be raised, eating what chickens are supposed to be eating and producing yeah, the best eggs wonderful. possible. Um, so again, uh, you can only do the best you can at the supermarket and the labeling now is super awesome and confusing. Like Vital Farms does an awesome job. I think they have the coolest packaging ever, too. It's so pretty. It's beautiful art. It's all recyclable, compostable. Um, their eggs are fantastic, and they're supporting a lot of different um, smaller smaller operations. They're kind of like an organic valley kind of thing. So that's awesome. You know, you get a cooperative kind of thing like that. Um, again, get to know where your egg chickens are coming from. I mean, I would buy um, – now, you got to question it because if you, there's – eggs for sale at the corner of your street and they're in a little cooler and they come about, they might just be backyard, a backyard flock. And the people may or may not be spending the extra money to feed them organic feed. They may or may not go through the extra effort of giving them their chicken scraps. They may or may not grow cover crop in their garden and feed it to them. So check it out. But that would be the best thing. If you can get a good source like that, that's as fresh as it can be. And so our chickens are running through our silvopasture, which is a super cool concept used in agroforestry used in these food forests used um uh throughout and it's where you you um move livestock um through your alleyways between your orchard or between your nut crop or between your row crops and so what we actually do is we have um we have the best eggs on the planet no i'm just kidding uh, but i just just took a moment to promote but actually <laughs> we sell out all the time and we're not ramping up to the point where where we can um, really meet the demand because we're losing our shirts on our chickens. Uh, and in order to scale up to the mm -hmm. point where we wouldn't be losing our shirts and it's a wise enterprise economic decision, we'd have to, we'd, I'm sure we'd blow through every like neighborhood regulation that you possibly could. Because right now we have two coops, about 75 birds in each coop, all laying hens except for one rooster to, to help protect and to kind of help keep uh, the pecking order in place. That's a real thing. I'm not chauvinistic. I'm absolutely open-minded to all. Um, and uh, that's just a real a, a part of it. Um, and uh, we rotate our chickens. We, will, we have a couple of different methods, but we basically will rotate them through where we've had a crop, whether they're going in to eat the crop residue or they're going in to eat a nice cover crop. They eat all the bugs. They leave their deposit. They stay in that footprint for a week or two, and then they move to the next footprint. Now, that's not no-till. Those chickens just tilled that soil. If you're talking about a regenerative pasture no-till, you're moving the chickens, like Joel Salatin and whatnot, on the grass. You're moving the chickens maybe a couple times a day. Um, you're moving your sheep maybe once a day, once once every couple days, your cows. you know. So you're getting them to, to basically mow your grass, cruise along, leave their deposit, eat the bugs, let the, let the flies hatch in their poo and you get this whole, like you get this whole microcosm. It's amazing. Miracles happen right before your eyes. Now this is a different situation. Miracles do happen before our eyes, but we're moving them. They, they're in mobile coops. They run along and they, they, and then we throw them our food scraps too. I think this is where you're going. You probably had some other conversations, but that transition period, if we're talking about converting, you know, 
thousands and thousands of acres, if we're talking about converting these large swaths of farmland throughout our nation and throughout the world, it's that fear of the systems that are barely working enough to keep the shirt on the farmer's back and keep their to keep their family in their home and right. keep them on their land. Who and their children don't want to work the land because they watch mom and dad just like blood, sweat, and tears and barely scraping it in. And no, they can't go to Disneyland because they already had to. Uh, you pay for tennis, right? I mean, it's just like it's real, and that that fear that's what's going to make that conversion. Is if there's systems in place, you talked about those incentives. Um, if there's those systems in place that will help, that will help those farmers convert. Um, if they decide to be that rebel in their, in their Midwest community, and they're going to sit there and have coffee, uh, with all their local farmers and they're going to say, Hey, I'm converting, I'm doing that regen thing. Um, a that's there. They probably need some counseling support because they're about to get shunt in their own community. Um, they are taking a leap of faith. Um, because it's going to take them at least three to five years to make that shift from all of their equipment, the timing, the, the seed expense, right. like how do you start to bite it off? So I think that's where a lot of that consulting that I know, um, farmer Brown is getting into and, um, uh, carbon Institute. And there's a lot of different things that are happening out there. I mean, schools are even doing it, you know? So, so, but that's what it's going to take to make that, that huge, that huge conversion. And I don't even know, I don't even remember where we started with that one, but um, take me back or take me forward. Let's <laughs> keep going. Either. That's awesome. But that, but I think that's where I wanted to go is, you know, the, I think the main points are for one, people to understand your enthusiasm, your passion for this and how it's about growing healthy, nutrient dense foods, but it's also doing it in a way that protects the environment and paving the way for others to do it. So that Midwestern farmer who is monocropping can learn to transition somehow to doing what you're doing. And yes, it's a leap of faith and yes, it's a challenge, but in the long run, it's what promises a better outcome for the farmer and for the land. And you kind of have to believe it. You have to hear from people like you who are doing it and living it to know that it can be the case. So I, I think that's what's so important about this, about your mission and about what you're doing. And so many details. I mean, we could get into so many details about crop rotation um, and about cover crops and the soil fertility and topsoil. And I mean, there's so much that comes out of this and water retention, so many benefits that come out of the way you're running your farm. Um, but I just uh, I'll leave it for a conclusion of what are the main take homes that people can do to how know how they can contribute, how they can help and, and how they can... Uh, make it so that that's the direction nice, we're headed. Nice. That sounds great. Before we set out another regulation, why don't we start to just support the notion? Let's refine it and support the notion and get these other things in place where there are, there's investment going in. Hey, you want to convert your Imperial Valley land? You want to convert your land in Nebraska? We got your back for five years. And then there's a transition period out. And we, hey, guess what? You're not alone. Yeah. There's other farmers and we've got all this equipment. And we know that you're going to need the no-till crimper at the same time. So we bought four of them. <laughs> so so i again i digress again I like but it. what can folks like do um get to know get to know where your food is coming from um get to a really good soluble and woody harrelson really helped bring it about but kiss the ground um awesome great yeah. book great movie we showed it at the farm um and you know another individual who has a really wonderful podcast tied in similarly to the holistic health that you're bringing about um, 
is uh, I like I like I listen to two different doctors' podcasts, and now I'm going to start listening to yours too. One is Doctor Zach Bush, and the other is uh, <laughs> Doctor Mark Hyman. And uh, um, I don't know um, your relationship with them, so um, if I just mentioned old buddies, hey, how cool! If I just offended anybody, hey, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but but so um, kiss the ground. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Farmers Footprint has done a really cool job, and they're actually building soil advocates. So they've got a soil a regenerative soil workshop training, which I'm actually thinking of doing. I think that it would be super fun and to, and to see what's going on, you know, next door, um, with, with this, because, uh, you know, we do it on a small scale of, we've got an employee at a farmer or an educator on the farm and we're going to do a, a farm tour, you know, spend an hour and talk about the different things. And then each tour, you know, they get to build on it a little bit more, but to go through an intensive like that, you learn about your soil, you learn about your food system. And we're all impacting the food system in different ways. Yeah. So um, I would say that those would be kind of some of the key Very takeaways. Cool. I could keep going, but I won't. Well, there you have it. Three different perspectives, uh, two ranchers and a farmer, but really coming to the same sort of conclusion, that, that the land is there to help us, to help us grow food, to nourish humans, to grow real food, to nourish humans. And if we don't care for that enough, if we don't really... Um, prioritize taking care of the land, then we're going to be in trouble. But by prioritizing taking care of the land, we can get ourselves out of trouble. So by using cattle in the appropriate way to manage the land, not only are we growing the highest source of protein we can, but we are taking carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it in the soil. By focusing on crop rotation and, and agroforce and uh, perennials and cover crops. We're helping the land sequester water better, use water better so it's not as water intensive, and we're producing uh, nutrient-dense foods for people by using chickens to come in and help with the land and produce some of the healthiest eggs you can. I mean, it's all part of the system, and I love the quote, when we stop thinking about the land as a resource and start thinking about it as something that gives us life and gives us nourishment. That's what I mean, it almost sounds idealistic, right? To say that sounds idealistic because how are we going to get these companies that are worried about maximum production per uh, per acre of land? How are we going to get them to change um, their perspective? And it's not going to happen overnight. But like we heard from, from Adam McCurdy, that there is this change happening and there are some potential ways to do it by supporting the local farmers, by supporting farmers who are transitioning to this way of growing their crops. Um, and they have to sort of take a leap of faith, like he said, to do it. But if there is that support in place, if there is some sort of a safety net to help people make that transition, we're doing the environment a huge benefit and we're growing more nutrient-dense foods that, that people need. So um, again, it, it was a bit of a whirlwind between all three of them, but hopefully this gives you a good perspective on where we stand, where we're going, and what you can do to, to make better choices for the food you eat. And of course, it's easy to say and easy to do if you have the resources to do it. It's much more difficult if you don't have the resources to do it, but it doesn't mean you can't still think about it and try to prioritize it as best you can. And, and I, we can all hope for a day where it is as easy to buy regeneratively grown uh, cucumbers and broccoli and kale as it is to buy wheat that's been you know monocultured and tilled and processed in these huge farms hopefully one day it'll be just as easy so thanks for joining us on the diet doctor podcast and we'll see you next time